Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we get a little tipsy and skinny dip in a pool of our own sadness. It's just a funky good time. So grab your rosé and your goggles and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about suicidal ideation. I talk about suicidal ideation on the pod a lot, but I decided to dive headfirst into this topic because I think, I mean, I think we need to talk about it, right? Like, I think it's really common. I think most of us don't want to open up about it because it's really scary and it's so fucking painful. And also, I think, I mean, I know there's shame associated with it, right? Like in the era of the Instagram post, we don't want people to know that we don't always have it together. It feels incredibly vulnerable to be like, oh, hey, yesterday I was thinking of ending it. Today I am taking a selfie, right? And also so many of us are professionals and we want to maintain, you know, a professional facade and you're not going to go to work and be like, oh, sorry, I was late to the meeting. I was sobbing in the bathroom and wondering if it would just be easier to jump off a bridge. Right. So in other words, there are many reasons why we don't talk about having suicidal ideation. I know for me, the number one way I got love growing up was from being the one who cheered my mom up or with my dad being the one who just didn't have any difficult emotions for him to get angry about. And so it goes utterly and completely against the grain of my programming to tell people when I'm in such a dark place, it feels terrifying. Like if I do that, I will lose the people in my life. I will lose connection. I will lose love. And I know that if I've felt that way, then other people also feel that way. So that's why I wanted to bring this topic out of the shadows and just get really honest and clear about it. That said, (laughs) this is a tender topic for me. I've personally never had a suicide attempt and I've never had a plan for suicide, but I have struggled with what's technically called passive suicidal ideation at different times in my life. And I'll get into what that has looked like for me. But when I'm in that place, I don't even want to talk to my therapist about it. Like I actually one time walked out of a therapy session in my 20s because I couldn't, like, I don't want anyone to look at me, literally, the feeling of being looked at, like someone's eyeballs on me while I'm so vulnerable, is almost unbearable. Like, I want to crawl out of my skin, even when that person is my therapist. And so for this episode, I actually decided not to have a mental health professional on, I decided I wanted to bring on my very dear, very close friend to have this intimate conversation with. So I'd love to welcome the founder of Coincide, an on-demand yoga and wellness platform, Courtney Higgins to the pod. Hi, Courtney. I love you. Thank you for being here. Hi, Remy. I love you. And I am so deeply grateful to be here and have this, like you said, very needed, very raw, honest conversation with you. Yay. Well, I'm fucking stoked to get into this with you. You and I have known each other going on. Wait, is it? I think it might actually be 10 years this year. Yeah, it is 10 years this year. Holy shit. Okay. A decade, girl. Oh my God. A full. Wait, what? For anniversaries, what do you do at 10 years? What is the. <laughs> do you know? Um, 
I don't know, but we, I mean, we need to come up with something, Remy. I mean, I need to like send you a silver goblet or whatever the Ted Deer thing is. Or this is our invitation to plan our trip, our next trip together. <laughs> yes, please. It's going to be hard to be our Tulum trip. I know. I'm still just calling in for us a uh, boat in Lake Powell. Oh my God. Yes. Just you and I. <laughs> I don't know why I just sounded like I was from Wisconsin. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, 100%. I want to go to Lake Powell with you. Mm-hmm. We'll add that to, we'll put that on our 10 year anniversary list. Yes. So we met while we were both working at Nasty Gal. You were in charge of the samples. I was working in production. So I would bring you the samples once they came in from the manufacturers, but we never really talked until I threw the first watermelon party, if you'll recall. So mm-hmm. for the listeners, When I lived in LA, I used to throw these watermelon parties that were like all watermelon cocktails, watermelon mimosas, mojitos, margaritas, everything. And then it was like 90s hip hop all night. And you showed up in a watermelon crop top with a package of watermelon Oreos, which completely fucking blew my mind. And you worked the dance floor so hard. I was like, who is this girl? I am obsessed with her. And we've been friends ever since. Yeah. Okay. But my favorite part about this is you invited me because we had barely talked. Like it was just this quick when you dropped my samples off or I'd go get samples from you. And I remember walking by your desk one day and I was wearing that watermelon crop top. And that's what got me the invite to the party in the first place. (laughs) Oh my God. I don't even remember that. I was wearing the same top I wore to the party and you were like, hold up. And you called me over and you're like, I'm having a watermelon themed party. Do you want to come? And I was like, more than anything, more than anything in life. <laughs> uh, that was step one. And then was the watermelon Oreos and us learning that we love to dance together. <laughs> well, also, I would just like to say that I do look, you know, the universe works in mysterious ways. And I feel like that was divine intervention being it's just like whispering in your ear being like, wear the watermelon shirt, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, the universe was very much like, this is your ticket for your soul and Remy's soul to reconnect in this life. <laughs> yeah. You guys have been sisters in like 8,000 past lives. This is how it, you come back together in this life. Oh my gosh. Those parties, Remy. Legendary. They did get quite big. And then, and then one year you came over and helped me make a photo booth for it. <laughs> it was like a slice of watermelon, like with the seeds and everything. <laughs> Oh my god it was epic it was oh god r.i.p to the watermelon party it was a great time so let's talk about your astrology for a minute you are a pisces with a scorpio moon and rising venus in aries mars in gemini so having all of that deep intense water right at the helm of your chart pisces is the spiritual healer. And that's a lot of what you do in your career now with your yoga platform. And of course, Scorpio is so intense, goes so deep, plums the depths of heartache and pain and sort of has the ability to look those painful places right in the eye and take them on. But you also have your son and Mercury in the fifth house. And I have a fifth house stellium. So we both, so just like, 
to recap for people, the fifth house is ruled by Leo. So there's Scorpio who's like so intense and Pisces who's like so dreamy and like in the feelings. And then there's Leo who's just like all about joy and fun and romance and like childlike awe and wonder and creativity. And I really feel that energetic dichotomy in you. You can go so deep and get into some of the most painful crevices, but then you're also like, can we please, you know, make a picture of Mars and have an eighties party? Honestly, you took the words right out of my mouth, but yes, there is definitely a dichotomy within my chart of this, like super intense Scorpio energy. And then all of this, like fire living in sunshine. And that's why I describe my life and so much of the way that I move through it is the yin and yang energy. So sitting in the dark and the light, and I really feel that I have not, not mastered by any means, but been able to like tap into both in a way where I don't get too far into the dark and I don't get too far into the light. Like I can find that middle, like I know that they dance together and that I'm very grateful, like so grateful that I have the fifth house, (laughs) that my son is in the fifth house and that I have my Aries. And I've always said that when I learned that in my chart, I was like, that's what's keeping me literally afloat. Oh my God. I'm sometimes I'm so jealous because I have Venus and Scorpio. It's like, but Venus and Aries is just like, bitch, let's handle this. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I do have my, like my Scorpio want to take the wheel and just like hold grudges and be resentful and like be really in the dark, you know, and there's like whole other, and then my Pisces will be like, let's just like dream away. And then my Aries is just like, burn it down, moving on. So it's like this, (laughs) like, I'm definitely like ping ponging a lot, but, um, but I am grateful that I have this, yeah, some fire energy to help like pull me through the, the darkness. Right. Yeah, totally. And I totally feel that in you. And it's, you know, part of why we've been friends for 10 years now. But the reason I wanted to have you on today is because you and I actually had a really powerful conversation recently that was so healing for me. I opened up to you about some of my struggles with suicidal ideation, and you were so loving and supportive and made me feel so safe and cared for. But you also shared with me about how you respond mentally to darkness and tragedy. And it was so powerful for me to hear about your process. So that was another reason I wanted to bring you on to sort of shed some light on how we can rewire our brains and what that might look like. So thank you for being here. I can't wait to get into all this with you. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience with suicidal ideation. While I do that, feel free to interject with thoughts, feelings, like, trivia questions, you know, about Dawson's Creek or whatever. (laughs) Or you can just chill, eat a banana, get in, um, I don't know, lotus lotus position. Is that a position? Did I make that up? (laughs) That would have been probably a good idea for this is to do some yoga. (laughs) Girl, yoga it up, you know, do all the yoga, do your thing is what I'm saying. And then uh, we'll dive in when I'm done with my part. How does that sound? Perfect. Okay, cool. So when I think back on the different times I've experienced suicidal ideation, there have been some underlying themes that trigger it. The first one is some variation of feeling like I'm not loved by God, like I've been rejected from the universe. I used to say that it felt like the universe had broken up with me. The first time I felt that was when I got sick while I was living in Puerto Rico. I've talked about this before, but I'd gotten parasites without knowing it. And I was having all kinds of weird symptoms that no one could figure out, including terrible cystic acne. 
that triggered all of my wounds around feeling defective and unlovable. And when it happened, I was like, I'm not going to take any pharmaceuticals for this. I'm going to heal my body naturally. I'm going to use herbs and all natural products. And, and part of me doing that was like wanting to connect to spirituality. I was like, herbs come from the earth. They come from God. I'm going to use the medicine of the earth to heal myself as a way of deepening my relationship to God and to spirituality. And then two years later, I hadn't made any progress at all. I was like a complete anxious wreck and I was in full on despair. So there was this sense of like nothing I do works, which is how I felt in my family growing up. Incidentally, I couldn't make my mom not be depressed and I couldn't manage her erratic screaming and rage. I couldn't make my dad love me. I couldn't make him like act like he wanted me or not rage at me. So that sense of despair and hopelessness and powerlessness was a big part of it that sort of like got echoed through this sickness that I had. But there was also this sense of why isn't God helping me? I'm doing everything right. I'm drinking all this fucking detox tea. I'm using all these natural topicals. I've totally changed my diet. It was this feeling of I'm showing up for God, but God is rejecting me. And that feeling that like God would help other people, but not me. I first felt that as a little girl, starting at like five or six, I would pray that God would fix my mom's life and like find her a boyfriend like she wanted and help her stop crying and make her not be depressed. And my prayers didn't work. So the way I made sense of it as a child was that God loved other families, but didn't really love ours. That pain of feeling abandoned by God, feeling not chosen by God, feeling like other people got to have God's love, but I didn't, that came up for me again, big time when I was using all these natural remedies and like diet based remedies and nothing was working. I should pause here to say eventually it was natural remedies that fixed the issue, but I had to get to the right herbalist first who realized I had parasites. Like no one figured that out for a really long time. Anyway, when the suicidal ideation really peaked, I was in grad school. I, while I was in Puerto Rico, I applied to grad school, got into grad school, moved straight to Austin to go to grad school. And like my health issues weren't any better. And I was teaching lit classes. I was teaching these like, you know, poetry workshops while I was taking my own classes. And I remember just like being at home, having this very soothing fantasy of being in a grave while dirt was being shoveled on top of me, creating like darkness all around me. And then I would pick myself up, go to campus and be like really funny and upbeat and like teach these classes and be on top of my shit. And then I'd go home and sink back into this place of just like utter darkness and despair. So I'll pause to say a couple things about that. One is I never had a safe space to be depressed when I was growing up. And so I didn't know how to give myself space for depression as an adult at all. All I knew how to do was power through, pretend I was fine, be funny and upbeat, make sure my feelings weren't a burden to anyone else and achieve. I mean, like here I am having these terrible fantasies. And then I got straight A's in grad school, like while I was teaching intro to literature and just like thinking about killing myself every day. I don't think anyone would have guessed that I was falling the fuck apart. I was that good at pretending. And that 100% exacerbated my condition. Feeling like I had to perform happiness so that people wouldn't reject me 
that feeling is so excruciatingly painful. And it, without a doubt, made me feel even more suicidal. If I had had a place to just go be depressed where people could see could see me in my pain and still love me and support me, it would have changed so much about my condition. But I had absolutely no idea how to ask for support because doing that as a child only led to more rejection. I'll take this moment to use an example that's actually from adulthood, but I wanted to use it because it really mimicked what it was like for me and my family. And I actually don't think I've told this story before. Maybe I have. It's hard to track all the fucking traumatic moments I bring to this podcast. Um, Okay, so I think I was like maybe 30 or so, maybe 31, definitely an adult, but also really unpracticed when it came to feeling like I mattered or knowing about boundaries. So anyway, I'm 30-ish. And I had this idea to take my mom to this beautiful outdoor hot spring spa that used to be in Northern California. It has since burnt down. Anyway, it was about a two hour drive from my mom's house. And I wanted to take her because my mom has chronic pain and I thought it would be really good for her. So we drive up there. She was driving. And when we got to the parking lot, she couldn't find a spot. So she just starts screaming, literally screaming in the car. I don't mean complaining. I don't mean um, being a little upset. I mean, next level, full rage, ear piercing, screaming, cussing, completely losing it. And I went full on into trigger mode. I was suddenly five years old again, stuck in the car with my mom. She's out of control. She's raging. She's driving erratically. I can't get out of the car. I'm totally powerless. I'm helpless. I'm terrified. Of course, eventually we do park as you do in a parking lot, even with you initially can't find parking. And when we get up to the hot springs, I immediately found a bathroom, locked myself in it and just sobbed. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I was so triggered. And also I had essentially just been witness to like a complete mental breakdown. I was stuck in the car with someone who was like mentally unstable and I couldn't get out. I'd been re-traumatized and I felt really unsafe. The first thing about that is that my instinct was to get somewhere where my mom couldn't see me because in my childhood, in my whole life up to that point, really, it generally wasn't safe to cry in front of my mom. But what I didn't realize was that you could hear me outside the bathroom. You could hear me crying. And when I came out, my mom was standing there and she had this like, sort of disgusted look on her face. And she said, why were you crying? Everyone could hear you. And there was just so much disapproval in her voice. It wasn't like, oh my God, Remy, can we talk about why you were just crying so hard? It was, it was like, what's wrong with you? You embarrassed yourself. That was the message. And that was the end of the conversation. Of course, I didn't tell her why I was crying because I was crying because of her. And that was absolutely not okay to tell my mom that she was the cause of my suffering. Cause that just meant I would be rejected even more if I was honest about it. So I pretended to be fine after that. So we could just try to enjoy the rest of the day. And we never talked about it again. <laughs> I wanted to bring that up because it gives a good example of one way that we can become suicidal. I think, I think a lot of us turn to thoughts of suicide because it feels like there's no safe place to go with our pain. 
we learn about that in childhood that just gets ingrained in us so young and we carry it into adulthood. We also carry the shame that our parents or caregivers often impress on us. My mom shamed me for crying in the bathroom. She wasn't concerned about me. She wasn't worried that I wasn't okay. She was sort of repulsed by my emotion. When that's how the people around us treat us, we turn that inward. We turn that on ourselves. We start to tell ourselves, I don't want to be an embarrassment. Or we learn, if I show my pain to anyone, they'll just reject me. So I can't show it. Or we say like, I'm so fucked up. What's wrong with me that I feel this way? We internalize that and then we go through it in silence. For a lot of us, we perform happiness while we're suffering through suicidal ideation because our experience has been that it's safer that way. The truth is that there are unsafe people who we can't trust with our pain, right? That's just the truth. And there are other people who are safe, who we can trust. It's just so hard to unlearn that programming once it's been drilled into us so many times as kids. And by the way, as adults too. I do also in this conversation want to talk about anxious attachment because other times I've experienced suicidal ideation when I felt rejected by someone. So just to briefly review, we all have attachment styles. Some people are avoidantly attached. Some people are anxiously attached. Some people are securely attached, etc. I'm anxiously attached. So my underlying feeling is that love can easily be taken from me. And so I have to fight to keep it and I have to prove my worth to people and all this bummer ass bonkers shit, not bonkers. Like I'm crazy, but bonkers. Like that's not how love works, right? Like you don't have to prove your worth in love. Anyway, the underlying belief in that for me is a belief about being defective. There's something wrong with me. That's the feeling. I was shamed a lot by my dad growing up. He told me I was greedy and manipulative when I was like four or five. He would scream at me for making mistakes. He could be a pretty cruel guy. With my mom, I got praise and love and affection when I was upbeat and happy. But when I was emotional, I got shamed for the most part. So I took on this belief about being defective as a kid. And when I became an adult, the way that I would show up most of the time was feeling defective in romance. I would feel like, There's something wrong with me that makes men not want to be in a relationship with me. And I'll also say I was really primed to feel that way, but I didn't really start to feel that way until after I was cheated on and then spent years trying to attach to someone who was totally emotionally unavailable. And that's another piece I want to add here. We've talked about this before, but your attachment style is still malleable as an adult. If you really trust someone and they cheat on you or deceive you in some way, that can totally impact your attachment style, even if you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s. So for me, it was a combination of things, childhood trauma and relationship trauma. But by the time I entered my 30s, I felt really disposable and really defective. Like there's something about me that makes me not girlfriend material, and I don't know what it is. But I think part of what it is, is that I want love so much. Wanting love was one of the main things that I thought made me unlovable, which 1000% came from my relationship to my dad. I was like, dad, want to do love? And he was like, with you, pass. So I was carrying a deep rejection wound and a deep I'm defective wound. And when it came to men in romance, I was a raw nerve. I was just a walking raw nerve. If that nerve got touched, 
I couldn't maintain objectivity. Feeling rejected by a guy I liked could send me so deep into the self-talk around being defective, but also into this self-talk of like, this will never end. Despair is my brain's favorite go-to. It loves to tell me that a painful thing I'm experiencing is how life will be forever. And so in a moment where I was feeling rejected by a guy, my brain would be like, and you always will be, and you never will be loved. And you always will be alone because there's something fucked up about you that pushes men away. And that will never change. It's just like the meanest fucking voice. And it's called eternity thinking where our brain tells us it will never end. It's a common effect of child abuse. A lot of us have it, but it's so key to my experience with suicidal ideation because the thinking goes, I'm not getting the love I need, whether from God or from other people, whatever it is. And it's because there's something wrong with me and that's never going to change, which means this pain is never going to end. And I can't take this pain. It's too much. I can barely take it in this moment, much less forever. So there's only one way out that I can think of. And I want to say, because I think it's so important, suicidal ideation isn't really about wanting to die. In fact, the times where I've had suicidal ideation, the death part is the scary part for me. The thinking about how I would do it so that it wouldn't be painful and so no one would have to deal with my body or whatever, that's not the appeal. The death part's not the objective at all. The objective is ending the pain. The pain is so fucking beyond it's so agonizing that it it like it, it almost feels physical like your body is literally overcome with despair and heartbreak and hopelessness and then our traumatized brains jump in and are like and guess what you're going to feel like this forever and so in that way suicidal ideation feels like us being compassionate with ourselves it feels like us saying actually you don't have to feel this forever there is an out. You can give yourself relief. It's our traumatized way of trying to find pain relief. Like when I was in grad school and I would fantasize about being in a grave and seeing dirt fall on top of me, even though that is some Edgar Allan Poe shit, it wasn't because I was macabre or like poetically tragic or something. It was because the idea that I could just disappear into a place where I didn't have to pretend to be okay, where I didn't have to be seen, where I didn't have to feel my feelings or wrestle with God or think I was defective. That was such a relief to me. It was truly so soothing. So what has helped me with suicidal ideation? I'll start with what may be a controversial strategy but I want to share it because it's one that got passed down to me years ago from somebody else. And it honestly has really helped me in those moments where I'm just in too much pain to think clearly. In those moments, I tell myself, I'm not going to kill myself right now, but I give myself permission to think about it again tomorrow. And if I want to tomorrow, I can. I don't know if this is helpful for everyone, but it's been helpful for me because if I tell myself I have to stay in this state of misery and I don't know the way out and maybe there is no way out and I don't know how long this is going to last, but I've had so many painful experiences in my life that this could just be one of many more to come, right? Blah, blah, blah. All of the really painful, scary thoughts, all the spiraling that pretty quickly takes us straight into the eternity thinking 
then I put myself in a dangerous place of feeling like it's never going to end. And that's the real danger for me. That's the trigger. But if I tell myself, hey, you can do it if you want, you can, but just not right now, wait a day. Then it gives me 24 hours to come out of the overwhelm and the spiral. And it relieves me in that moment. I suddenly feel relief because I feel like there might be a way out. Like there might be relief in the, in the next 24 hours. It's sort of like, I know I'm tricking myself, but my brain needs to hear that there's some kind of relief option in the immediate future. Of course, you could try telling yourself this pain won't last forever. So let's not kill ourselves before we get to the good shit. And that's honestly the better way if that works for you. But for me, even though that's true, it doesn't always have the same effect of helping relieve my pain in that moment. I think that as we heal, healthier options will be more and more appealing to us. But if you're triggered to the point of really seriously thinking about suicide and Googling suicide methods, sometimes it's just too hard to make the leap from that place to a place that makes sense, right? Like you just have to work with the fact that you're in a deeply traumatized state and tell yourself, hey, you could do this, but let's just wait till tomorrow. 100% of the time in 24 hours, I'm in a different space, not a way better space necessarily. It takes me sometimes like days or weeks even to get really fully back on my feet. But usually I'm not so out of mind by the next day. And if I am still out of mind, I can do the same thing. I can be like, okay, you can totally do this, but wait till tomorrow. Another thing I can offer is that my therapist and I at one point wrote out a safety plan for me to to go back to if I ever have suicidal ideation. One of the things we have on the safety plan is a list of things to do in those moments that will help me refocus. That list has things like go walk around in nature, one of, which has helped me in the past, or like play music super fucking loud, which... I don't know why she actually brought it up and I was like, oh shit, you're right. That does really help me because it gets me out of my mind, right? Like it just like drowns out my thinking. Thrifting is another one because I swear if you put me in a thrift store, it's like something takes over me and I become fixated on finding thrift gems, which just sounds like ridiculous and like kind of silly. But a part of me is just like, oh man, I don't want to miss all these deals on vintage shoes. Like I don't know how to explain why it works, but a thrift store is truly my happy place and I could spend hours there. And if I find some really good shit, it just makes me feel better about life. So not everyone is going to be like, yes, thrifting is the thing to add to my list, but I'm giving you examples so that you can start thinking about where's the place that you go where you just like your brain can kind of refocus and you can just kind of get stoked about something. Here's another example One time when I was in grad school, my ideation was peaking and getting really bad. Like I was looking around the house for pills and I just went to Home Depot and bought a bunch of different paints and I painted a huge mural on my living room. Like I needed a step stool. It was like up to the ceiling. We had to paint over it before the next people moved in because it was just like this big mural. But that mural saved my life. I painted these huge flowers that had boobs on them. I called them boob flowers. And I just channeled all my grief and overwhelm into those boob flowers for like three days. And it just got me to the other side of the overwhelm because I had a place to put my focus and to bring me joy because creativity brings me joy. 
So making a list of things that lift you up or just divert your attention or remind you that life can be fun and cool sometimes. And then going to that list and doing those things in those moments where you're beside yourself, that's definitely helped me in the past. Another thing I've been working with just generally in my life that I think could be helpful in moments of suicidal ideation is a new affirmation that my coach came up with for me. And that is, it's safe to be sad. In my family, it was never safe to be sad and it still isn't. No one ever loved me through moments of depression or anguish or heartbreak. I was shamed for being in those places. And I think a lot of the reason I've struggled with ideation in my life is because I become so isolated in my struggles. And on top of it, I have a voice telling me the worst possible things, right? Like we talked about, no one would ever want you if they knew you were like this. You're really fucked up and no one can know about it. This is never going to end. You'll feel like this forever. I'm just sitting in my room thinking the worst possible thoughts. But the other side of that is that because it was never okay to be sad in my family and because my heartbreak was so heavily policed by the people around me telling me I needed to snap out of it or whatever, I have this like angry teenager inside me who fights to defend and keep my sadness. She's like, don't try to cheer me up. You know, don't tell me to make a gratitude list. Don't tell me it might get better. Fuck you. Like I get to be sad. So it's hard because I do want to be able to be sad. I like I want and I need space to feel my feelings, but I don't want to be so territorial and protective of my sadness that I stay sad. Right. And that teenager sort of wants me to stay sad because if I don't, she feels abandoned and she feels unseen. So recently, when I feel grief coming up, instead of policing it or worrying it's going to get worse or trying to talk myself out of it with a gratitude list or whatever, I just tell myself it's safe to be sad. I'm safe to be as sad as I need to be. And I'm safe to come out the other side of this pain when I'm ready, however long that takes. I wanted to offer that in case anyone is exacerbating their suicidal ideation by beating themselves up around having it in the first place. It's safe to be sad could be a really helpful affirmation to just calm down and create space for those feelings without fighting to hang on to them. And that takes me to the last thing I have to offer, which is allowing myself to be witnessed by someone who loves me and who is emotionally available. And that last part is super key. I know not everyone has that person or people in their lives. I didn't for years and years, but sometimes we do have people or at least one person like that, but we're so ashamed of how we feel and so scared of being a burden or being made to feel like a burden or having someone respond in a way that makes us feel even worse that we just isolate, isolate, isolate. When we know there's someone who can tell us how much they love us and how special we are to them or to ask us questions about our pain, that last one, I don't know, maybe that's not something everyone needs, but I've realized that it really helps me since no one wanted to know anything about my pain in my family. Having someone ask me what's been going on that I feel the way that I do, it's just so healing because it's the power of being witnessed, the power of being important to someone and the power of being seen in my wholeness, right? Like seeing all of me, it's just so fucking healing for someone to be like, your heartache isn't a burden to me. And it isn't something to be ashamed of. Tell me what's going on. The hard part 
a lot of the time is us feeling safe enough to open up and let someone know so that they can show up and be that shoulder for us in those moments. And if that just feels too hard or you genuinely don't have a person like that in your life. And again, I want to reiterate, I didn't have a person like that for a long time. So that's not a reflection of you if that's your story. But if that is the case for you right now, you can call 988 in the US. That's the suicide hotline number. And they have people who can talk to you in English or Spanish. If you're outside the U.S. and you struggle with suicidal ideation, find the hotline number in your country and write it somewhere where you can find it when you need it. But I think in general, it's so important not to isolate. You're not a burden and you're not bad or unlovable or irreparably fucked up because you're struggling. Because if that's true of you, then that's true of me, too. And, and of every single other person in the world who's ever struggled with suicidal ideation, which is a lot of people, <laughs> right? Those thoughts are lies, mean lies that we can stop telling ourselves now. Okay, Court, how are you? How, how are you doing over there? I am doing well. It's amazing to take a moment to honor our friendship of 10 years because... It's also to hear, I know so much of your story and I know so much of what you've gone through, but then to hear it like pieced into these very significant moments, it's just so helpful. And it's a reminder of how we're always getting to know each other and how I feel just so honored to continue to be learning about what you've gone through and to be learning about the, the pain that you carry. And also I as your friend have always been so incredibly impressed by how you've moved through the pain and the trauma and the heartache that you've experienced and to hear even more about how you've done it and kind of where you were and how you've come is just, it's very, I feel very honored to get to hear your story. So that's how I feel. Like. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I love you so much and thank you for saying that. I feel so honored that you are open to having this conversation with me. And I think Part of your saying like, oh, I, I'm still learning about you. It goes back to, yeah, these are pieces that I've kept away from just about everyone. You know, like these are pieces that I'm only now starting to feel safe to bring out of the shadows, like I said. And I very specifically, it was very intentional asking you to come on to talk about this. There are a few reasons I wanted to have you on. And one of them was, I, I, and I'll talk about all of them. I'll, I'll say, and it's just like off the fucking top, I feel safe with you. Right. And that's like a big reason. Another reason is that when we talked recently, you told me you've never had suicidal ideation. And I was a little surprised only because you've had some incredible tragedies in your life. We lost Ben your younger brother just a couple years ago to a fentanyl overdose. And the year before that, we lost Noel, one of your best friends since childhood to suicide. As all of this was unfolding, you also lost both of your cats. It was like, I mean, the intensity of the loss in your life was overwhelming. And, and all of those were shocks, right? Like Ben had been hiding his addiction issues from your family. So no one even knew that was on the table. And Noel from the outside had been doing great. 
And I think when you have sudden loss that cuts so deep, it can trigger all kinds of emotional responses. If you had told me that suicide had crossed your mind at some point, I would have completely understood that, right? Like I wouldn't have been shocked by that, but it didn't cross your mind. And when we were talking the other day, I got curious about that. And I asked you when you've gone through these dark nights of the soul, which is what you called them. I asked you what your brain tells you. And I, I was like, so I was like, whoa, what? Cause it's like such a, um, it's, it's so not what my brain <laughs> tells me. And I really wanted you to share that with my listeners. Can you talk a little bit about what your internal dialogue sounds like when you, when you've been in those spaces? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for bringing Noel and Ben into the space. Um, this is such a powerful conversation to honor their lives and to honor um, mental health. And thank you also, Remy, for offering resources for people, because obviously that is such another aspect of this, that there's just such this sense of feeling alone in this world and mental health in particular, there's just this feeling that you're, you have nowhere to go and know what, you know, so thank you for bringing their little bit of their stories and, um, their souls are very here with us. And they, I think probably feel very, very honored to have their names brought into, um, yeah, into this life right now. They're not, they're no longer here, but yeah, I can feel them. And so thank you. Yeah. So my, of course, because of my, all my Scorpio and just my life, like I think I started having episodes, so to speak, of depression really young. I mean, absolutely really young. And I would get really introverted and I would need to close myself in the room, my room, and I would write poetry. I would write songs. And I struggled with having, like, I would sleepwalk and I would have night terrors and I would have these crazy like screaming in my sleep or like walking around my parents' house. Like I definitely was going through a lot of emotional stuff from a young age. But what I found at a young age is that when I would go into these places of darkness, I would always come out feeling a lot more connected to myself and a lot stronger. And so as an adult, I will feel myself starting to enter a depressive state and of course, whenever we go into that, there's this feeling of like, no, 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 no. I don't want to go there. Like, I don't want. And also why sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Like you're doing things are good. And you're all of a sudden, like, wake up one day and you're like, I feel awful. And you just, you're in this emotional state. And so of course there's those times where I feel like I'm being pulled into the darkness and pulled into the murky waters of my soul. And I'm, I'm like desperate to get back on shore and I don't want to go there. And of course we know that's not how it works. And we essentially, what I have come to learn is that I do believe part of our human existence is to, to kind of let that darkness kind of be pulled, like pull us in and let it like, let it not necessarily drown us. Cause that's obviously where, you know, the suicidal ideation can, go to the next level. Right. But allow that darkness to wash over you. And exactly what you were saying, Remy, like that permission to be sad, like give yourself permission to be sad. And really like you're feeling that darkness, you're feeling that intensity and just allow it. Because what I've come to learn is that I'm, I'm going to learn something about myself that I maybe didn't know before, or 
I knew it about myself and it, I'm still not healed or I'm still working through that trauma or whatever is coming up for me. And what for me, my mantra and what I spoke to you about is I always know I'm going to come out of it. I always know. I don't know how long it'll last. I don't know if it'll last a week. I don't know if it'll last a month. I don't know if it'll last a day, but I know that I will come out of it and I will suddenly be able to have a deeper understanding of myself. And so for me, there's, there's this sense of almost curiosity, like, wow, I'm being pulled into the murkiness to learn something. And if I really allow myself and give my, myself permission to be sad, I will learn something about myself that will hopefully help me continue to grow, you know, to go back to the suicidal ideation, hearing you speak about it. And then to talk about my brother something so fascinating that I didn't know about. I was talking to my mom this past weekend about doing this podcast episode with you. And my brother had a lot of suicidal ideation. I don't know. I'd have to ask my mom. I should have asked her this this weekend, but I don't know when he started having it. I want to say probably when he was like 12, he started talking about suicidal ideation. He was bipolar. So had a lot, a lot of ups and downs. Um, he told my mom once that it was the com- he experienced comfort when thinking about the su- suicidal ideation. And I remembered you mentioning that. And I thought that was such a power. And I'm so glad you touched on it here because that is such a powerful invitation to not for a, not feel the shame around it. And B, to again, give yourself that permission to, okay, you're in the darkness right now. You are trying to figure out what will bring yourself comfort while you're in the darkness. You're trying to figure out what you can gain or lose from this darkness. I just found it really interesting. There's something in the brain that suicidal ideation is doing that is calming the nervous system. And so there's some, there's something there. There's a reason for that, but because why would it calm your nervous system unless it's something in your brain, right? Like there's something there. And I think it also goes back to this idea as humans, like we want to control our reality. We want to control our reality so badly and we can't, we don't have control. And that's part of what makes life so fucking hard is because we don't have control and we're thrown things that, especially if we had a traumatic upbringing or we had traumas in our lives that, that bring those wounds back up all of a sudden we feel out of control. And I feel like suicidal ideation gives that sense of control back. And then also the invitation of you're allowed to be sad gives that control back. And then the invitation of you may have something to learn from this darkness gives that control back. Cause all of a sudden you maybe have this, this ability to grasp the steering wheel again in that those, those moments of being so just thrown out into the storm that you are in. Right. The other thing that is really helpful for me, but is such such a light. I believe it's a lifelong practice is of, I'm a yoga instructor and believe so deeply in a lot of Eastern philosophies, especially when it comes to death and life and all of those things. But, um, one of the Buddhist teachings is the idea of non-attachment. I have noticed in my life, I can be someone who can get really attached to things. And when I, when I notice that thing that I'm attached to suddenly detaching, like I it's leaving or it's changed, that it can, it can cause a lot of upheaval. And I've seen that a lot specifically in friendships. I really struggle when friendships change, especially when it's abrupt. What I've, what I was, when I was thinking about this conversation too, I was like, wow, that idea of like, this will end. That is the same idea of non-attachment. 
the there because there's the suicidal ideation brings in that permanency of like I'm like you were saying I'm going to feel this way forever and that voice inside your head that starts going you're going to feel this way forever but if you can kind of stop that voice for a minute and say no because everything is changing all the time nothing is constant this will change this will shift and look differently we don't know when maybe it's 24 hours from now right but this idea of like trying to even you like the word like i i am not attached to this i am not attached to this state that i am in like even just that yeah just the idea of non-attachment has been a really powerful one that i've used and even just reminding myself of of the non-attachment and then all along the same lines but like i was speaking about the yin and yang philosophy that we in order to have balance we have dark and light even looking at when we're in the darkness as not only a teacher, but like a really beautiful part of who you are. That's helping the light in you have balance. So you can't have light without the darkness and vice versa. You have to have both. And with both, you get to be more of a complete person within your soul, within your existence, because you, you have to, and you learn lessons from both. And so that's like a lot, <laughs> but all of those things are where my mind. Goes. Holy shit. Um, okay. <laughs> You've said so many incredible things, but I do want to talk about this thing about the light and the dark, because again, we live in the era of the Instagram post. <laughs> We get approval and love for being pretty and fun and successful and um, achieving and like hitting all the milestones, like getting the job title, right? Like getting, buying the house, having the family. That's how we show the world that we matter or whatever. And, or it can be right. We don't get approval for saying, I thought about suicide today. We don't get approval for a post of us in our darkest moments of, of us like falling apart or anyway. I mean, I think that's changing. I feel like TikTok is changing that a lot, but, but typically, and like for many, 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 many years going into your um, dark night of the soul, that's not how we have, like there isn't anyone sitting down next to us for the most part saying this is such a beautiful part of your life and this is such a beautiful part of who you are and this is what makes you so special and what you're going to learn from this is so valuable I can't wait to see what you learn from this right like we don't have those teachers and that wisdom as part of our collective, as part of the culture and the zeitgeist. And so you bringing that in is so powerful because it's so fucking true. And also it reminds me that years ago, the first time I God, I think I was like 28 or something. Someone gave me a book about depression. It was a very thin book. I have, I cannot for the life of me remember what it was called, but a woman wrote it. And it was like written in the seventies and she was like all hippied out on the back cover. And she talked about trusting your depression. She talked about trusting that when you exactly what you said, like when you go into that space, there's something valuable for you there. And it's not something to run away from. It's not something to fight it's something, and it's not something to criticize. There's something that 
you need to learn from the process. So thank you so much. It was so beautiful for me to hear your experience um, with where your brain goes, because I know for a fact that the brain can change. Like that's not in, that's not something I'm intuiting. That's, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with intuiting things, but I, I, I know that for a fact because science knows that when I was growing up, despair was modeled to me by my mom a lot. I remember her saying, I'll never be okay. I'll always be fucked up. And that created the sense of hope. It like wired me for hopelessness. Right. And that gets triggered when I'm in a dark space. But what I love about hearing more about where your mind goes is it's sort of like having something else modeled to me, right? A new model to draw from. And since no one is really, I mean, I shouldn't say no one, but like in, in everyday life on social media, whatever, I don't hear a lot of people talking about what their brains do when they're in these really dark spaces. I don't know how other people navigate such painful places. And so for me, I was just doing what I knew and what had been shown to me, right? Going to the hopeless place. But hearing about your self-talk is like, oh, there's another way and I can use that as a new model. I can try replacing the old model of despair with this new resilient model, this new self-talk. So that's incredible. The other reason I wanted to have you on was because of the way that you handled hearing about my suicidal ideation when we talked. And one thing that you did, and I sort of mentioned this before, was ask me questions about what I'd been going through without trying to cheer me up. You weren't like, it'll all get better soon. Or like, you just have to think positive or any of that bullshit. You were so great about really hearing what I'd been experiencing and like really getting into the fact that that was hard and painful and you validated where I was without validating the suicidal ideation. And I remember you saying, it hurts me so much to think of you in that place because you're such a light and I never want you to feel that way. And I think what's so wild is that that was the first time that I have, that, that anyone has said to me essentially, knowing about my darkness, like in response to my darkness, that anyone has said to me, who you are is beautiful and I love you and I never want you to suffer. And it seems like such a no shit statement when I say it out loud, but no one in my family who knew I was suffering has ever said anything like that to me. And the one time I did open up to a friend when I was having suicidal ideation, she definitely didn't say that to me. So I just wanted to take a minute to name that it was so healing for me to be witnessed in my pain and to hear someone say, I love you so much that it hurts me to know that you've been hurting because it it really made me feel safe. And on the flip, I think it can, you know, from like where you were in that moment, I think it can be hard to hear someone you care about talk about their struggle with suicidal ideation, right? Like it can be scary or anxiety provoking or all kinds of other things. So I was curious and wanted to ask you, like, if you could just talk a little bit about what it was like on your end in that moment when I was bringing that into the conversation. Yeah, Remy, thank you so much for asking that question and bringing that up because that conversation we have talked about was so equally important for both of us. It was so, it was so monumental for me because to go back to social media, I will be the first one to say, I am not Mrs. Vulnerable on social media at 
all. As a matter of fact, it's very scary for me to be vulnerable on social media. I am very much sunshine butterflies, social media. You do not see my dark shadow of the soul on social media. It doesn't happen. I have tried a little here and there, but it's so scary. Um, and that's true for all of us, right? You, that's what social media is. And what hit me first really hard when you told me you were, you were in that place was that on social media, I had seen happiness and what, what it, it made me just stop so dead in my tracks in life of we need to check in with our friends. We need as society, social media is going to have its shifts and changes. And ideally we can all support each other and validate each other in discussing more of these really, really hard things. And hopefully that's where social media can go. And like you said, TikTok might be helping to pave that path, but because we're not there yet, what we have to do is check in with our friends. And there needs to be this very clear understanding that what we see on social media is one part of it. It's back to that yin yang. It's like, it's the light side, but the dark side is maybe not being seen. And so we need to check in with our friends. And so when you first said that to me, I just got hit with this huge, like, okay, I had been seeing you on social media and thinking you were fine. And I had not texted you to say, how are you in probably a couple of weeks, you know, because we have a culture where we see what's going on in social media. And that's just what we, what we see for me hearing that I of course had some like bubbling stuff, trigger stuff come up with my friend, Noel, who committed suicide very suddenly, who struggled with addiction and mental health issues for many, many years, who I found out later had had many suicidal ideations and even had attempted. And this was, he had finally succeeded. And so of course that was coming up for me. So I was having all these, my own things. And as I was hearing you and feeling my own things, I even had this moment where I was like, none of this has to do with me or my story. (laughs) This has everything to do with my, one of my best friends in the entire world who is hurting right now. So none of like me not checking in on her, my friend who I lost, like that is on the side right now. And what we are talking about is where you are at right now. And I was genuinely in this state of how could I have helped you more? Like what, what could I have done? How could I have made myself more available? You know, and so I was wanting to ask questions as a way to educate myself of, you know, you getting to that place and having a deeper understanding of the way that your brain works and the way your brain was working so that I can not only understand you more, but so I can be a friend for you and a safe space for you. Because like you said, ultimately, that is maybe what we so desperately need in those times is, is someone who you can turn to that's safe. And I think that's such a a powerful word. Yeah. So for me, it was, there was a lot of feelings of like desperation of like, I want to, I want to fix you. I want to make you feel better. But I knew that that wouldn't help. And I knew that I needed to just, I needed to just learn where you were at. And that would be how I could help because I didn't fully understand either, you know, but yeah, it brought up a lot. And I would say the top biggest thing it brought up was just society is so interesting right now because in so many ways we're so connected, right? That's, that's the social media piece, but in so many ways we're so isolated. So I was feeling like even a collective sense of like, this is such a perfect example of isolation that so many people experience where they feel that they are doing this all alone. And then the other thing that came up and this is like, it's not funny, but it's just (laughs) you because you were telling me it in the way that you tell me, like in kind of a not nonchalant way, but you were just like, yeah. And then I was like, 
crying and Googling ways that I could, could take my life. And you were saying it in this very, just like matter of fact, kind of nonchalant way. And for me, I was, and knowing you, I was like, but this isn't nonchalant and matter of a fact, like this is, you're saying it like that because you are a little probably unsure of how I'm going to react or how, you know, it's going to be received. And when I heard you saying it that way, I was like, no, this is like, this is real, real. This is not just nonchalant. And so that would, that was something that came up for me is like the way you were telling this story told me also how it, how it real it was and how intense it was for you. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, <clears throat> Yeah, it is. <clears throat> Sorry, I noticed, by the way, that when I'm recording and something is hard for me to talk about, suddenly, like, I get, there's something in my throat. Um, um, yeah, I. it's so funny that you remember me being nonchalant. I'm sure that that was my defense mechanism because it's 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 so funny because I remember that moment being really scary. And I... I remember like, I'm sure that I did try to just like say it out the side of my mouth, you know, like, because it's so terrifying for me to open up about that stuff. But actually for me, it would like took a lot for me to say that because it has never been safe to say that to anyone. And so, yeah, like, it's so interesting the, the different ways, like the, how that felt for me and like how it felt for you. Cause it, it totally makes sense to me that I act like in my mind, it was so hard to say and didn't feel nonchalant, but I also know that I'm so protective, protective of your emotions and protect. And you've had to be, you've had to create that, that shield. And so there was like that sense of like, I need to protect this. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and I also want to say, like, it completely makes sense that you, of course, you thought about Noel. And I think that was another reason I was a little nervous, like broaching the topic with you is because I know you've had this trauma around it. And so, like, yeah, I absolutely. I think it makes complete sense. And there's I I. I hope it, that it didn't you didn't in any way shame yourself for having those thoughts about the people you've lost and your brother and all of the, you know, Noel and everything, because that's absolutely how we, any of us would have felt in your position. It wasn't a sense of shame at all. It was actually, it, let me clarify that. Cause it was actually, cause okay. When Noel, like I had, he had sent me a funny meme, like a couple days before he took his life to give an example. But if I look at our conversations in that last year, which turns out that last year he had been struggling so, so, so badly, I checked in with him a little bit here and there, but we never dived in. There was never a like true, how are you? And so for me, it was actually this like, almost like I got like woken up when you were sharing this with me of this like, okay, I know what can happen if we do not make sure that we are checking in with the people around us that we deeply care about and love. And even though we may from the outside think that they're like totally fine, like just don't forget to check in. And so for me, it was like, it was more of a wake up versus a feeling of shame. It was like, let me like take the lessons that I learned from that deep, deep pain in this moment. Like what if Noel had been able to call me and we had been able to have a conversation. It was like that kind of sense came up in me of 
yeah, what if we could call our friends when we're in those, those moments and what could happen if we're able to help our friends out of, not out of, but work through those moments of, of deep despair. Yeah. And so that, that's really what came up. It was like, let me like call in the wisdom of what I, what I learned with his passing. That's so beautiful. And it's like, yeah, when you talked about social media and you talked about like getting that meme from Noel, that is how so many of us handle the darkness is we just, we perform happiness. We pretend that it's what we're going through is not what we're going through, you know, because we're so afraid. So, and one thing that was so powerful when you and I talked was that we agreed that if I had thoughts like that again in the future, that I can reach out to you for support, which felt scary for me only because it's so ingrained in me that I don't want my feelings to burden anyone. But you were so emphatic. You were like, please reach out to me. Please let me be that person. And just knowing that you were open to that made me feel loved and seen and accepted in a way that I have very rarely felt in my life. So I just wanted to thank you for that. And I also wanted to bring up the fact that you were like, girl, have you tried these THC CBD pills? (laughs) And you told me that you have taken them before when you were in a dark place and that they really helped. And so I found, well, I found a version of them. I couldn't find the exact ones that you had, um, but I found a version of them and they did super help. So can you talk about your experience with those a little bit? Yeah. I've never tried antidepressants or even like anti-anxiety medication. I just personally have never tried that for me. If my yoga, which I consider my medicine, if my yoga is not helping me, if my meditation, which helps me ground, if that's not helping me, if dancing, listening to music, hanging out with friends is not helping me. Like all, I like check these boxes. Then one thing that's really helped me over the years is like microdosing THC and specifically sativa because sativa is more of that, like uplifting. It makes you feel less like you want to sleep, which is more indica. And when you're in a state of depression, it's great to let yourself sleep and rest and recharge. But if you're in a place where you're like, okay, I've done that. I have tried the recharging and now I'm ready to kind of give my soul some like uplift. That's been really helpful for me. And the one thing I learned, and I think I shared this with you about marijuana in particular that I found so interesting is it is considered a heart healing herb. Oh, So it can actually like its effects are actually to help heal the heart, which to me, I was like, that makes so much sense. Why in these moments where my heart feels so tender and I feel so, you know, in a dark place, it feels like it's giving me, it's not fixing me. It's not cheap, you know, fix isn't even a good word. It's not like, okay, suddenly you're happy now. (laughs) It's not doing that. It's helping me honestly, even tap more into what it is that my heart's needing to tell me. So I've had moments recently when I went through an episode of depression where I was really, really having a hard time getting the messages. Like, what am I supposed to learn from this particular episode? Other than I'm just kind of feeling really sad right now. And maybe that's all it is. Maybe sometimes that's all it is. But for me, I, I pretty much always can get a message and I was really having a hard time getting a message. And I kept getting, try try some weed, <laughs> try some weed. And I was like, I really need to try some weed. And then I read that it was, that it is for heart healing just somewhere. It was like, it was very much a message, very divine. Like I read it somewhere. It was like marijuana is for heart healing. And I was like, 
great. I need to go immediately now. I don't even know why I'm putting this off. And I went and got some edibles and I'm so, so sensitive to substance. So I have to take like the tiniest little amount. And I want to say that I'm here to be like very careful with dosing with edibles specifically. I take the tiniest amount and then I just like let the effects, like, am I feeling it? How is it letting me feel? And this last episode, I swear... I suddenly got clarity around what it is that I was experiencing and it was surrounding friendship and relationships. And it was this, like the minute I started taking the herb, I just felt the clarity and I didn't feel suddenly like happy go lucky. It was just like, Oh, that's the thing that's happening. I'm having, I'm going back into a cycle of, of there's still a lot of wounds around this and I'm needing to sit like, this is what I'm, I'm meant to learn from it. And it was really powerful because I, I swear it was, it was the weed because I was feeling really murky. I was having a really hard time. And then the weed just, yeah. So I go to, I live in Colorado. So dispensaries are in every corner. It's very easy for me to get weed. (laughs) Um, and that one that I sent you, Remy, I actually am friends with the, her husband works for that company. And so I, we could maybe even link it or something, but, um, yeah, we totally, yeah. Can. So, but yeah. And then CBD, I would say has been another helpful one for just calming the nervous system for me, just helping with that, like anxiety, that sense of I'm like going to crawl out of my skin. I, you know, the way that anxiety can work, I would say, yeah, CBD was really helpful for that. And so, yeah, that blend that I sent you was really helpful for like tapping into my heart, getting the message, and then just helping my nervous system calm so that I could feel a little bit more of a sense of clarity. And I feel like they are meant to work together, right? It's they're the same plan. So yeah, I had never heard about it before you, I mean, obviously I've heard of weed, but I had never heard of like, <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely have smoked weed before I am an adult. Um, this time first time. <laughs> yeah. can you imagine i was like what is it called marijuana um no definitely have spoken before but i had not heard about these pills that were like thc cbd combos that were like one to one and i found a brand um i couldn't find the brand i think the brand that you sent me is like maybe specific to colorado i'm in arizona but i found a brand called 1906 and they make pills that are one to one thc and cbd plus they have plant medicine in them, like ashwagandha and other natural mood enhancers. Uh, They have a a bunch of different kinds. Like the one I got at my local dispensary was called love. And it says on the packet, I was like, what is this? It says on the package that it's for arousal, but the dude at the dispensary was like, it's not, it's just good for like feeling love in your heart and calming your nervous system. And it super helped me with heart hurt because when I'm going through something painful, like emotionally painful, I get really bad heart hurt, which is the physical feeling you have in your heart when you're like going through a breakup or when someone has died or when you're like really homesick, like that intense pain in your chest. And it makes my mental health worse because the sadness feels like it's in my body and I can't escape it. But taking those really helped relieve that heart hurt and just allowed me to breathe a little easier and open up to the feeling that things might work out, might be okay. They also make a bliss pill, um, which I want to try, a genius pill that they told me to take if I was like going through something and I needed to get work done, <laughs> which is like so real. How often does that happen to us where we're like, wow, I really feel like shit and can't stop crying. And yet here's this deadline looming where I have to like get this fucking thing done for work, right? So 
there that was the genius pill and then there's like a go pill for energy and then there was one called a chill pill lol that was for relaxing so i know that not everyone has access to thc products in their states or countries but if you do those might be helpful for you and if you don't cbd is legal in every state so you can find like cbd products that might that might help um okay courtney i (laughs) i can't tell you how grateful i am for your presence in my life and also how much i love you I love you so much and I can't thank you enough for coming on to have this really sensitive conversation with me. You do a lot of cool stuff through coincide. And I know you started some also some like cool mom groups cause you're a mom and you've, you've started these cool groups in Colorado where you live. If people want to learn more about any of that, how can they find you? Oh, Remy, I like really told myself I wasn't going to cry and I'm probably knowing me I'll cry after the call. Cause that's the way I do things. <laughs> Same. Right. It's okay to cry whenever. Yeah. But I so deeply believe that we are so intertwined soul sisters in this life and um, your light and your presence and just your wisdom and this podcast helping people and talking about these really tough subjects is is such medicine to this world and you are such light and medicine in this world. So I am so grateful to know you and so grateful. And I feel so honored to be on this podcast. I'm, I adore your podcast and I adore what you're doing. So I just feel so, so honored. Um, Yeah. So you can find me at coincidelife.com. That's the best place to, to learn about all the things. I have an on-demand yoga membership um, where you can take yoga anytime, anywhere. A lot of intention actually, when I first launched the on-demand yoga was during COVID, but there was this idea of when you are in a state of, of sadness or of vulnerability or of needing to just be alone and how overwhelming it can sometimes feel to go into a yoga studio. It's very healing and beautiful to be in person, of course, in a yoga studio. But if you just like simply cannot get there, all you can do is roll onto your mat and open up your computer. And that's, and you can still get some movement and breath to help you move through whatever it is. That was actually a huge part of why I started coincide. And I started Coincide as a way to help my brother. There was a a lot of intention there to help him because he um, would go into the States where he couldn't leave his apartment. And so there's that. There's there's the idea of you can just open up and press play on, on a yoga video. And I have courses on there. And then, yeah, for anyone in in the Evergreen Foothills area, I'm I'm going to be hosting Mother Circles. And I'm actually planning a retreat in October that is going to be diving into grief, actually. Yeah, there's there's still so much to be said with that, but also I'll just leave it at that. But we're gonna be, I'm 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 going there. And it's it's to be an in-person place of healing and connection. So yeah, but coincide life com is probably the best place to find all the things. Amazing. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Pachama Party or on my personal Insta, Remy's R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's a great group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Pachama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5, et cetera. 
I poured myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash the Pachama party and scroll down to the support button. And you can also find the support option on Spotify directly. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.